Happy New Year. Yes, it's 2022 and Bristol Unpacked is back. We're here with a new series talking to a range of people from the first city of Bristol on loads and loads of different topics. We'll be talking to all kinds of people, some you may not even like and they may not even like either. It doesn't matter. We're here to have a broad conversation about the city and everything that's in it. So, enjoy. I can absolutely understand why the statue of a slave trader um, would be an affront to a large number of members of our community. I absolutely understand that. Walk past that statue and know its history. I can understand why it's an affront. People would feel disgust, unease, and I can understand why people would feel that um, in, 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 in the times that we have now, it's no longer compatible with it being there. I'm Neil Max, and this is Bristol Unpacked speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. First up in this series is Chief Constable Sarah Crew. She is the head of Avon Somerset Police and came into her role at the back end of last year. And she covers a huge area, which is Bath, not just Bristol, North East Somerset, North Somerset and South Gloucestershire, which is 1.72 million people. She was born and raised in South Gloucestershire in Yate and she was schooled in Bristol. We talked to her about a range of subjects. Her role essentially is the one where the Police Crime Commissioner, Mark Shelford, can choose and she is accountable to him directly. So lots of things to talk about. Police and Crime Bill, Colston 4, over-policing of communities institutional racism, adult sex offences, and much, much more. Last week, Mark Shelford, the Police and Crime Commissioner, released his crime plan for 2021 to 2025, which lists the area of focus and the key objectives. The area of focus are vulnerable children and adults, male violence, drug crime, serious crime, neighbourhood crime, fraud and cybercrime and road safety. And he lists the key objectives to reduce crime and antisocial behaviour, to increase positive outcomes from reported crime, to increase proportion of crimes reported to the police and fewer people to be killed, injured on the roads. How much of that strategy will be part of your role to implement across the region? Across Avon and Somerset, actually, I'm, I'm accountable and responsible for delivering the Police and Crime Commissioner's Police and Crime Plan. So mm-hmm. absolutely all of those things, you know, at the core of it is a commitment to prevention. But yes, I am accountable for that. So let's break some of those down. Um, let's start with the first one around male violence, because I know that is an area that you've been involved in around sexual violence. You've led on teams with that kind of focus. Just going to read out some stats on that. So in even in Somerset Police, as it stands at the moment, 3% of rape and sexual offences reported end in prosecution. And of the 2,589 sexual violence reports handled by Avon Somerset Police in 2020 21, only 32 people were handed court orders or charged with a crime. Is that something that is good enough for you? No, absolutely not good enough. It's actually reflective of what's happening across the country um, and it's an issue not just for policing it's for for all the different actors and players in the criminal justice system actually it's a concern for society because with outcomes like that people don't have trust and confidence in coming forward so um, no it's not good enough but it's something we are really working hard to and in different ways to improve and change and the green shoots of that change are already starting to to shine through and it's you know, our approach is something that's now being rolled out and copied nationally. Tell me about Project Bluestone. That's some sort of new evidence-based approach to policing. Is, is that something that is connected specifically to sexual violence? Yeah, absolutely. So Project Bluestone is the name of a unique collaboration between police practitioners, investigators, but also academics. And what it draws on are 30 years of academic research evidence of what works 
mm-hmm. then coming into a police force, opening up your books and access to the investigators to, to test whether you're actually doing that in a joined up way. That's what we did at the beginning of 2021. And we found some things that we expected and we found some things that probably a bit more hard to um, um, hard to take, actually. But what that's done is it's created together with the academics a new kind of pattern of investigation, but also some real commitment to investigator specialism, development, but also how we use data and information. So that that collaboration carries on and it's um, it, it's it's. It's enough promise that the government in their rape review, which they published in the summer, have extended the approach to five other police pathfinder areas, including the Metropolitan Police, which is happening at the moment. Yeah, and on the Metropolitan Police, obviously there was in the wake of the Sarah Everett killing by a police officer, there was some controversy with some of the advice that the Met gave out, which seemed to kind of indicate you know for women to make changes as, as if somehow it was kind of women's responsibility what did you think of that when you when you heard that um what's really core to project bluestone and what's really core to my approach actually and i think it applies to the wider violence against women and girls is we need to focus on the perpetrator so anything that um it, 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 you know it, in any way places any responsibility or um any um uh, any Own, any owners. emphasis yeah. Yeah. yeah any emphasis on the credibility or the actions of the victim actually we should step away from that what we need to focus on the people who are quite silent often in this type of offending um and that's the perpetrator you know the the controversy is always around the police or the criminal justice system or indeed the victim mm-hmm. um, and quite often we lose focus on the perpetrator so my advice and my focus through Project Bluestone is absolutely to reshift that balance back to the perpetrators and expose their behaviour and how they use the system to get away with their crimes. You know, in some ways, they not only groom their victims, they groom the rest of us because, as I say, in a lot of these debates, they are absent. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's something that seems to have, in the city anyway, seems to have sort of hooked into... Uh, a sideline of of this conversation um and it's it's a it's quite a big debate there are say even slightly a toxic debate where both sides don't seem to be giving any ground on this is around sexual entertainment venues um and how that has some kind of correlation or impact upon offenses in which we we speak around um do, do you have a particular personal view on um sexual entertainment venues um, I mean, my personal view, um, and clearly policing is often independent of any kind of politics or view either side, so I have to balance those things. But sure. in my own personal view, I find it hard. Um, I find it hard to find it compatible that we have those venues and those premises um, with women. Um, I have to say, um, though they will not feel exploited. But, but but acting in the way they do, as well as having a really strong commitment to violence against women and girls and to eliminating it. So mm. I, I just find it incompatible. But by the same token, I know that drawing the direct correlation for evidence um, in terms of entertainment venues and violence which may happen outside those venues or after is very difficult to draw as well so it always has to be a balanced position but my personal view is I I just don't find it compatible with a view that that, you know a view that one day I would like to see young women um, able to go about their lives free of any fear of any harassment abuse. You see it as the objectification of of women yeah, absolutely. It's what it uh, does psychologically to to it, you know what, how it what it says about our society, but how it normalises certain behaviours. And I see some of the, those normalisations and those, um, especially for young people, I see some of those um, mixed messages making it very very hard for people to differentiate between right and wrong. There is very little evidence to indicate the correlation between sexual entertainment venues and, and sexual violence that, that we have to, to date. 
do you have some sympathy, I guess, with the people that work in those establishments that feel, hang on a minute, this is our, our livelihood. I mean, if we don't, you know, this is, this is something that's safe, it's something that's managed. If we, the alternative is a lot worse. Yeah, I, I have sympathy for all of those views. The beauty of policing is we listen to all of those views. And you asked me for my, my personal yeah, of course, view. Yeah, of course, yeah. But, but, but I'd say I look at the broader society. I look at my national portfolio. I look at the way that criminal justice system, but beyond that, society, you know, where, where violence against women and girls sits, whether that's child sexual exploitation or whether that's child abuse or indeed whether that's adult rape offences. And, and we're not in a really good position. And so the base level is um, it, 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 we're not in a great position, even though in individual premises, people may feel empowered and safe. It's about the messages we send in our society that's, that, that's I guess, in the back of my mind. Um, you've come out and said on record that you want to make Avon the Somerset Police determinedly anti-sexist and anti-racist. In terms of stop and search data, black people, as you're well aware, are five times more likely to be stopped and searched by even the Somerset Police. Um, the use of stop and search has reached a six-year high, and just 10% of these stop and searches result in arrests. How can you build trust back, in particular with the black community mm-hmm. in Bristol? I mean, building trust um, and strengthening trust is, 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 is the most important thing for me. And as Chief Constable, um, it's critical because that bond of trust that exists between um, what I call citizens in, in uniform and citizens in community is, you know, policing doesn't get done. Not, not the kind of policing that I want to do without it being there. And I do recognise that there are certain groups in, in, in our communities, particularly the black community um, where there are lower levels of trust. How do I repair that? Um, well, I've, I've already started. The first thing to do is to have some courageous conversations. So the police commissioner and I, in November, um, um, convened some um, um, events in St Paul's where we invited lots of different voices from the black community to... And, and we asked them some simple questions over, over food provided by some, some local businesses, which were... What does policing in Avon and Somerset look and feel like from the outside looking in? Tell us. Um, And how can we rebuild your trust? And those conversations were really powerful and we will come back to them. But they they were powerful in in talking about what we needed to do, particularly around um, young people and their interactions with police officers, about understanding lived experience on both sides. So, So I think on one level, we need to have those conversations and we need to do something with them. On another level, um, they, those conversations need to extend within policing and the organisation as well about how we, um, both, both in terms of how we treat women, but how we, we think about race. Um, there are some courageous conversations to be had within the organisation, within policing too. So I think if we can do both of those things, we can start to come together we can start to rebuild that trust. Um, what was really clear from, from those meetings that we had, that um, members of the black community are not against stop search. What they're looking for is stop search done well. So one of my measures of success has to be when members of those communities actually support and are happy with the way stop and search and use of force and some of our other powers mm-hmm. are used. I think that's an interesting point because there is the, the, the conversation that often gets swayed in the, in the direction of over-policing and the data is there to say that that, that, that does happen. But also there's sometimes a disparity in, 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 or can be a disparity in how certain communities are protected. I think, I mean, I grew up in, in a city around Eastern and, and Eastfield and, I remember when you would see, you know, open prostitution in in St. Paul's, drug dealing in St. Paul's, which then filtered into Eastern. And I always felt that these these things wouldn't be allowed to happen in areas like Clifton or, you know, Stoke Bishop. There was always a feeling that people were allowed to get away with doing things like that. And actually, it was out of sight, out of mind. Um, Do you think there's some truth to that? I mean, 
stop search and the use of police powers and how indeed police officers are deployed has to be intelligence led. It has to be evidence based in the way that we do things, you know, how many officers are deployed to a particular area when they're on duty, when they go out from their briefings, the information they have and what they're tasked to do. For me, it has to be intelligence led. But I also understand that, that those powers need to be used really, really well and objectively well as well. Um, because by the same token, if, if I were um, um, a really successful organised crime group, actually the, the way to carry out my business and do it successfully would be to, to actually operate in those, those areas which there may not be much policing and to operate in ways that you know, perhaps the, the police don't... Uh, traditionally think of our, our intelligence doesn't tell us for instance that those who carry drugs are middle-aged middle-class women an organized crime group wanting to be successful would use that tactic uh, yeah for sure th- blind to being yeah. open-minded as well I mean there's the obvious thing around you know things may be intelligence led but the sense of communities certain communities in the city want to be policed and to feel safe and to be protected and and mm. particularly some of those more deprived communities in Bristol there's sometimes that sense of kind of being over policed in one direction but not another and, and I wonder whether you talk about intelligence but also things around just basic simple examples of decision making that police make around racial profiling or I mean I, I live or lived literally 200 yards away from the, the tasering of, of Ras Judah, who, you know, I feel like I put £500 on the table and say, had he been a white man of that age in Clifton, behaving exactly the same way, that would not have happened. Mm. And that's why I say we need to have courageous conversations within policing about issues like this. Um, is, it, is that a training issue then? Is that a training issue for police? Is that is that a, is that a community relationship issue? What, what is it? It's it's all of those things. Um, but I think at the core of it is is it's not stop search as a tactic. It's how stop search is done. It's about the um, the the uh, understanding. I, for me, empathy is really important in policing, and it's to understand. The, you know, to walk in someone else's shoes and to understand how some of our, tacti- our tactics, um, our powers feel yeah. to other people. And uh, those are where we need to have the conversations to, under- to, to see the impact of what we're doing. So I think it's community relationships. I think it's through training. Um, but it, it's something that we need to continually challenge ourselves on. Yeah. I think, how how do you feel when you see, I mean, obviously this is, this is quite topical now where we have the lockdown policing where people were picking up, you know, astronomical fines for violating lockdown restrictions with parties and being kind of arrested and being moved on. And then we're now seeing what looks up to, I think it's 17 to date parties at number 10 and the Metropolitan Police just sort of stood outside and kind of not knowing anything's happening that, that type of stuff, when you're trying to build trust with the general public, doesn't help, does it? It kind of reinforces this sense of we aren't all policed the same. Certainly, policing the coronavirus legislation put policing in a place that had never been before. We worked hard across the country, but we worked particularly hard in Avon and Somerset to make sure we were using that staged approach of you know, engagement, education, before we moved to enforcement. And um, I think we did a good job of that. We were particularly sensitive right from the beginning that um, the concerns that are there rightly, um, and they are lived experience, the concerns that are there rightly about use of our other powers would be present in the use of these powers, albeit to protect public health. Is there one rule for one and one for another, though? When people see that, it it can't be helpful. From a police officer, a policing perspective, you know, we are there to be impartially um, uh, observe, enforce with discretion in a proportionate way the law. It doesn't matter who's doing it. You know, mm. no one is above the law, and we we do it objectively, fairly. That's core yeah. to our ethics. 
So if they are found to be in violation of restrictions in this Sue Gray report, then should the police take action? I mean, the, the, it should be referred to the Metropolitan Police to assess what they do. And then there are other parties and actors within mm-hmm. the system, like the Crown Prosecution Service, that, that need to work through all of those things. And it will be done in a fair, objective, stage way, as it would be yeah. um, for every other member of the public as well. Okay. Just cut in there, just to let you know a bit about the Bristol Cable. Familiar listeners will know we are a membership organisation and you can become a member if you pay anything from a pound upwards each month. For those that are unfamiliar, new listeners, then this is your chance to potentially shape what the media does in Bristol. So get involved, do go to our website, check it out and see if you want to become a member of Bristol's cooperative media back to the chat i think there's been definitely over half half a dozen possibly even more crime bill protests in bristol yeah uh, bristol is becoming a kind of center for this kind of stuff and pulling sort of people in from, from the broader region that was the last weekend you have a background and you've been involved in I don't know what the official title would be. What chief commander on the day is? Is that what you would be called? On it? it's, yeah, it's the gold commander. Or gold the, commander. Gold yeah, commander. Yeah. Um, so you've done that kind of role. You know, you know what what that takes. I I just wanted to sort of touch a little bit upon some of the events of last summer. Did you feel that the police lost some good faith in the city after the initial? riots at the police station and continued a few days afterwards with the events on College Green when there were calls from the the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats in the city to have a police inquiry into what they call police violence and tactics, the use of shields. Allegedly, some female protester was punched, journalists were attacked. Was some goodwill lost for the police in Bristol? I mean, you're right to separate out the different events. So if we can do that, I want to be really, really clear that yeah. what happened on the 21st of March, the criminal justice system has, has used the indictment of riot, which I don't think has been used, certainly not with a successful prosecution since 1831 in Bristol. So it, it's right to say that what happened on the 21st of March was completely unacceptable. I think 82 people have been arrested and 43 people charged and a lot of officers injured and, and traumatised actually because of it. Can Three, I just jump in on, sorry, can I just jump yeah, in yeah. on that? The um, the injuries that reported to the media were different than what the injuries that were actually sustained, weren't they? The um, picture... To the police, of, that is. To the police, that is. Yeah, the, the picture of injuries changed throughout. Um, I think there are upwards of 40 officers now. Um, and I, I, I am loath to say actual numbers because um, I don't want to get it wrong and be inaccurate and be accused yeah. of misconstruing things because it, it, it's wrong. Things change, injuries appear. Quite a lot of the officers that I've spoken to, actually, their injuries are psychological. Um, a lot of them have stepped away from doing that type of policing because of the impact it has had on them, on their confidence and their own self-assurance. So um, there was, um, at, in the events that happen, you know... Was that just an accident? Was that just an error of judgment? Because I still can't quite get my head around how you can uh, diagnose a broken bone without having an X-ray. Yeah, what happens in those situations, it's fast-moving. Information is passing around, often in those first few hours verbally. Mm-hmm. So somebody says someone has been hurt, it's a suspected broken bone. By the next stage of the transfer of com- conversation, it's yeah. turned into a broken bone. By the time it reached the chief constable, you think that you've got a grasp of the information. But actually, when you track back, it's so like So it's just everything. like Chinese whispers. It gets lost in translation down the kind of chain of command before it comes to the media. Yeah, in the, in the immediate aftermath, yes. Clearly, as the 
um, the, the policing is very much like that. When yeah. we are thrown into situations that are confused, that are dynamic, where you, you grasp the key bits of information, it's only in the days, the weeks, the months when yeah. the detectives and the investigators come through that you actually get a real understanding of what happened. Can I um, pay devil's advocate just slightly? Because yeah. I think some people listen might go, well, hang on a minute, the police have got a bit of form with, if you go back for a number of um, civil disturbances, protest riots from the poll tax to the Battle of All Grief to Hillsborough to elements of the miners' strike. There's been a number of times when the press have been briefed with injuries that have been in- inaccurate. Is that just, um, you know, a, a cynic would say that was trying to win public opinion by getting a message out early and quick. If someone was being more kind of forgiving would say that was a kind of innocent mistake. Following these riots, there was also, on top of those injuries, there was a a letter that came out from key leaders from the city supporting the police immediately afterwards and made reference to those kind of injuries. Genuinely, 100%, honestly, this was no attempt to try and control the narrative and the story of of what happened to, to the press and get that story out. Absolutely not. I mean, I can't speak for any of those things that have happened in the past in other places, but I can speak for what happened in March. Um, There is a huge thirst for information, for wanting to speak to the police to find out what's going on. And there's actually a huge wish by the police to be completely open, honest and transparent and share what information we've got at the time. Absolutely, there is no intention of... um, Uh, of trying to control a message if we were trying to do that we would have to be honest done a much better job of it the fact that you know very quickly we were revising um and and allowing the process of investigation to clarify things um was was if nothing else a complete demonstration of trying it was national news by then there wasn't it sarah by then it was picked up by all the national newspapers and, and the kind of the follow-up story about what well, actually the, the details of the injuries are not are not as severe probably didn't gain as much kind of traction that that letter by the leaders yeah who was that coordinated by do we know i was don't that, know was that the council I can, I can remember the letter coming out, but I wasn't directly involved in it yeah. so you know it, it, it was certainly um helpful to have that united front by yeah you know, the, the, the different parties in the city, the different stakeholders. But um, I wasn't part of, okay. you know, I, 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 from them, I, I'd like to think it was spontaneous and because that's yeah. how they felt about the, 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 what we needed to do in that situation as a city. And as we fast forward then a few days on, people listening need to be aware that the reason for police moving people on is because we were right in the middle of new coronavirus regulations which would have stopped the ordinary conversations which take place between the police and the um, coordinators and leaders of of the protests we come to the situation of college green that was what sparked a, a, a bit of a division in terms of elements of leadership in the city and political parties to call for a potentially a public inquiry some of the policing on college green do you look back on that now that perhaps that felt to me like payback time i mean i can understand why people will look at some of those images and hear some of those stories um, and rightfully have questions to ask and we did receive a number of complaints and a number of cases we referred to the independent office of police contact as we should um, and we've worked really hard as well as we do after every large protest or gathering to to learn lessons. I mean, speaking of, you know, what are my reflections and what we need to do to rebuild trust and confidence in in that area. And I do think we have um, a a job to do to rebuild trust and confidence in the way we do public order and protest policing, because we, up until that point, had a very proud tradition of doing it very successfully. And if Um, you rewind to the Colston, we just obviously just come out of the the, the Colston 4 trial a couple of weeks ago, rewind to the toppling of the Colston statue, Mm -hmm. the policing was was the direct kind of opposite to that, which which did get criticism as well in some quarters, where people say that a riot was prevented. This felt culturally and tactically very, very different. And actually, the um, both of the... Both of those protests were um, planned, 
conducted debrief by um, commanders who are trained in exactly the same way. Um, the, what's different though is the context in the situation and both in the, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of large situation, you know, one was in, uh, in the summer in one set of COVID restrictions, another was you know, following a significant outbreak of disorder and rioting in another set of COVID restrictions, etc. So the, the, there's actually consistency in the middle of that, in the police commanders, their training, the way that we plan, organise and debrief those incidents. What was different, though, was very much the situation. And you have to be dynamic and be able to weigh up all the different elements in those different situations. I don't think those the commanders who were involved in the, the March 2021 mm. in, 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 were... were um, in any way had in the back of their mind what had happened back in June and July 2020. That, that, that wouldn't have been the case at all. So you were put in a, in a situation where you, because of coronavirus regulations, you were f- kind of forced to enact law and to sort of move people on. Did you wince when you saw some of the use of the riot shield? I've not seen stuff like that for a long time. The, the, the motion of pushing down or hitting people with the, with the edge of it. Is that something that's been... Is it an old tactic that's been re-emerged? No, I mean, the use of shield strikes is an approved um, college of policing tactic to be used alongside a range of other tactics, the the use of horses, the use of dogs, the use of um, what you discussed, the the police liaison officers to engage with protest organisers to try and facilitate their aims as well as balancing the rights of others. Those are all approved tactics Mm-hmm. But you, you ask, you, you, you're asking really important questions. You know, one of the things I think we need to be able to do, and I want to do, and I'm in the process of working through the proposals for these now, is being much more transparent about what the tactics are, how we use them, when we use them, how we train for them. Um, so I, I want to be much more open about opening up our training, um, mm-hmm. but also how we brief and I know colleagues from the National Union of Journalists towards the end of that series of protests were invited into briefings so 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 people can understand you know what officers and staff are told the parameters they're given when they go out to protest these things what the objectives and aims are the style of policing asked for but I do also want to open up um, for observation, you know, what goes on in the command suite as well, mm-hmm. so that people do understand the, the, the quality, I think, of the decision making, the pressures that the commanders are over in, in the split second, balancing what are quite sometimes quite nuanced human rights as well as the other criminal law as well. But and you don't accept, you don't accept that the use of the shield and some of the other tactics were unnecessarily violent on College Green. I understand what they look like, um, but I also understand that those complaints have been made, they've been investigated, they've been referred and they've been resolved. That isn't to say there isn't learning mm-hmm. that we need to take away from it, yeah. because it, it, you know there is also public confidence. And as you say, those images taken out of context, not understood as to... to what, yeah, you're right. And to, and to give balance to this... It may not necessarily be a big chunk of, of people that listen to the show, but I, I know an awful lot of people that were quite angry at the protesters and have become frustrated that Bristol's been sort of turned into this uh, rioting city, and and we're cheering the police on, and would say actually, what you know, what's what's the problem with that? They were told to move and they didn't move. I mean, it's when we when we we had a surge of complaints to our professional standards department after those events and I would say the complaints were split pretty much 50-50. Yeah. What's really important for me though, my learning is we need to be much more transparent. I, I do think afterwards mm. we also need to take some lessons from what we do with stop and search and use of other powers in inviting scrutiny of what yeah. we've done. Most of those officers will have been wearing body-worn cameras there will have been lots and lots of imagery from which we can pick back. Why was that tactic used then? Was it appropriate? Did, was it not? And learn from it. Did the police 
rank and file police get frustrated with all this stuff? Do they feel at times that they, God, they can't do anything? They're too tough than they're, they're being sort of bullies and being aggressive and being violent. If they don't do anything, then they're going to get criticism for not cracking down on, and they're damned if they don't, they're damned if they do. I mean, I'm sure officers do, and in moments of frustration, feel that, um, you know, in a range of different places, not just in the public order policing. Sometimes the safeguarding of children can be very similar when very bad, adverse things happen. And the first thing that we think about are failures of uh, uh, the police and other agencies are doing it. I do, you know, in frustration, people will feel that, but policing isn't um, a, a profession where you're going to please everyone yeah. all of the time. And officers and staff recognise that. And what they try to do is be objective, try to be fair, apply our codes of ethics in the way that they do their work Mm -hmm. and try to make really balanced, proportionate decisions in the circumstances. If we kind of flipped society a bit to blame everything on systems and institutions and we've kind of removed personal responsibility from people that perpetuate crime. Bad things happen when two things come together. One of the latent conditions in the system so you do need to focus on that but it also requires bad people to do some really bad things Um, and what we shouldn't do is take away their accountability and responsibility either Um, and some of that is about there may be opportunities early to prevent some bad things happening by identifying those traits those characteristics those risks and trying to stop and prevent them time and resource is an issue for police and policing and and there have been recent criticisms of the re-emergence of league tables re-emergence of there's some target to cut crime by 20 percent in return for 20,000 police officers there is skepticism from the police federation there's a quote here by chair john apter who said my message to the government would be to stop and think before returning to the mistakes of their predecessors Targets are not new, and we have seen before when resources become scarce, forces focus on targets to the exclusion of other issues. So if you're constantly trying to hit arrest rates and targets, something that more long-term, sustainable, drip-feed policing could be affected by that. How concerned are you about this return? Presumably when they say predecessors, they're talking under sort of Blair era where there was a lot of police targets. How concerned are you that that could affect the plan that you and Mark Shelford want to take across Avon and Somerset? Uh, If we were, and I think what the Police Federation are rightly doing is expressing a fear of something that might happen or they fear might happen. If we were to return to a target-driven culture, I would be concerned because target-driven cultures, we've seen it not just in policing, but in other public services around the world, drives dysfunctional behaviour. And as you say, you can often hit the target but missed the point what i'm not seeing though um, i'm seeing a governmental expectation that for investment in policing we'll see better policing mm-hmm. um, and we'll see less crime and i think that's you know valid the, the the measures that we are seeing emerge from um the government are things like reduce homicides not a numerical target but actually reduce homicides, reduce serious violence, reduce neighbourhood crime, antisocial behaviour, increase the satisfaction of victims Victims, of domestic abuse. And so they're they're setting a direction of travel around areas that I think we'd all agree are areas that we do need to focus on as a society and certainly as policing. So I I hear what the Federation say and I share their concerns. I've lived through target-driven cultures but i'm not seeing that come through at the moment no so on on the war on drugs which i don't think anybody would say that we're winning it's arguably inexpensive ineffective and disproportionate results which can result in the over policing of some communities so do you support a relaxation of drug laws to more harm reduction treatment and education I think I support all of those things in balance. I think that's reflective of the recent um, government drug strategy, which has been informed by a really um, incisive report by Dame Carol Black. And it it does do those. I I think the role of policing is around disrupting the supply of controlled drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think with partners, we need to help um, harm reduction. 
we also need to signpost and refer people out of a life constrained and controlled by drugs. Even in Somerset Police were the first force nationally to introduce something we call the Drugs Education Programme. And that was for young people and first time entrants into the criminal justice system, if you like, um, in possession of drugs, who we helped with an educational intervention instead of a criminal record. That was controversial at the time, but I think it signposts where we sit, focus and target on the suppliers who, you know, who are making money and profit out of misery, exploiting lots of vulnerable people. But is that, not, is that almost not a reason to start to think along the lines of decriminalisation anyway, though? I mean, it, those organised crime groups will... Um, their business model is to make profit at the moment an easy way of doing that is through the drugs trade and whilst that they continue to do that we will continue to um, do what we need to disrupt dismantle destroy them and the county lines and cuckooing cuckooing is when you take over somebody's house and often sort of often an addict or you supply drugs to to somebody whilst you deal from from there is something that it's quite rife in this region because obviously we've got a lot of rural areas around the cities. Presumably that's something that's quite key in any drug strategy is getting to grips with county lines, which is really tricky, I think, because what is happening now is that you talk about intelligence. It's, they're trying to get one step ahead of, of the game by recruiting often young middle-class people that wouldn't ordinarily be pulled into that world to do the dealing for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, county lines is a challenge. Um, It's a challenge for every police force. We, in recent years, national coordination across police forces has really improved with the National Crime Agency as well. So there's lots of targeted work we do locally, regionally, nationally. And there has been success. But like like many crime problems, it will, as we become more successful and know how it works and starts to be effective, it does change. So we need to be relentless on, on mm. this. Part of the growth in police officer numbers is being focused on our neighbourhood policing, our problem solving, our proactive policing, to make sure that we've got our resources targeted so that they can be changed as the, the crime patterns change and really tackle this problem. Mm. Um, as you say, it targets both vulnerable drug users, but often vulnerable young people as well, who are, who, who are put themselves at risk carrying their drugs around the country. Effectively, these young people are being groomed, really, aren't they? That's how it works. Um, that's why, you know, that's why I say the police need to be continue to be tough on those that are orchestrating this. That's where our role in the war against drugs, if that's what we call it, needs Mm -hmm. to be. It's the exploiters and helping those who are exploited. When people do complain to the police, just going to go through some stats now, Sarah. So fewer than one in 10 police officers are fired after gross misconduct findings. Mm -hmm. There have been 827 deaths in custody since 1969, with not one single officer convicted in relation the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC, has a £30 million budget with 400 staff and has been described by some opposition leaders as toothless and biased. Hmm. How would you respond to that? Um, I'd say that the um, complaint discipline scrutiny around police officers and police staff is probably more intense and greater than any other profession, any any form of employment than, than, than anywhere else. And it's all done in public view as well. That's not to say that we don't have problems within policing. Um, you know, I, I am um, proud to, to, to lead the organisation that I lead and have worked in for 27 years. And I'd say that 99.9% of the officers and staff I have the privilege to leave are the best of us. They're the best of society. They, they put their lives, they put their, and, and I mean physical lives as well as the, their way of life on the line to keep us all safe. Um, however, within that, there are 1% or 0.1% that actually um, undermine the great work of that 99%. And one thing I'm keen to do and will do 
is root out any subcultures that exist within policing because unless I do so I know that the public aren't going to have confidence in their police and that makes it harder and more unsafe for the 99.9% to do their job. Policing is very highly scrutinised in this you know seven days ago you know I was chairing a special case hearing of an officer of a number of years service and that was being done in public and um, with the accountability of the public um, a yeah. family of the person involved and the press who were able to report on it that doesn't happen in other forms of employment so uh, it should be rigorous um, I'm not complaining about that scrutiny because the police have very uh, powerful powers coercive powers even against fellow citizens and we we need to use them well so it's mm-hmm. right that there's that scrutiny but um yes there are problems and they will be rooted out and we do it in public that fewer than one in ten though is quite it, it would that be I, I don't quite know how that would relate to other sectors or other industries yeah i'm not being precise or there's a, i guess there's a sense right? i mean to me obviously journalists do it a bit sort of close ranks a bit and culturally protect but i think that's to a certain degree that's kind of natural on the flip side to what i just said i know you were yourself involved in the case around bijan ibrahimi where there was um a conviction for um pc kevin duffy who was sentenced to 10 months and andrew passmore was jailed for four months bijan ibrahimi was an iranian refugee living in bristol and seven years, the disabled man reported death threats and racial abuse from his neighbours. And on 14th of July 2013, he was murdered by his neighbour, who had falsely accused him of being a paedophile. An independent review concluded that the Bristol City Council and the police were guilty of institutional racism, failing to respond to a number of calls for his protection. Four police officers and her community officers were fired so we have seen that and you were involved directly in that case? I was involved in um, taking the learning and embedding the learning um, and doing so in a way that won the trust of Bijan's sisters. You came in after the conviction or you came in? Yeah, I wasn't involved in the investigation and yeah. I wasn't involved in, because uh, I was working elsewhere in Bijan's case while he was alive. Mm-hmm. However, what became really clear very quickly after it happened was there were lots of missed opportunities. There were lots of mistakes. There's lots of learning and we needed to embrace that really quickly. So I was engaged in a big program at the time to actually change Avon and Somerset's whole operating model and change us fundamentally. And I had to do it in a way that won the the trust and confidence of Bijan's family, particularly his two sisters who, um, I made a commitment to, a personal commitment, that I would do everything that I possibly could whilst in policing to prevent any other family experiencing what they they experienced. And I hold myself accountable for that still. So we continually use Bijan's case, even now, even as things have changed and our technology's changed and the world's moved on, but we use Bijan's case to continually check ourselves that we have learned the lessons. Um, I just want to end a little bit on the Colston Four. Do you still stand by the fact that Amos Somerset Police arrested the Four and others for toppling the statue of Colston? Absolutely. I mean, a, um, an, an offence or an allegation of criminal damage was made. We need to investigate that offence. We, we need to sort through all the material, gather it, assess it, um, come to a decision on whether there is a reasonable prospect of conviction and then pass that material to the Crown Prosecution Service to make a decision on whether to charge or not. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm, um, Were you surprised at the outcome? Were you surprised? Um, I'm never really surprised at outcomes, actually. Um, when things get to criminal trial, we have a role within the system and that's the objective, gathering and collection and assessment of evidence. And that's what we did in this case, mm-hmm. um, and I stand by the outcomes that that come out of the system. You know, when you when you're a police officer, you have faith and trust in the criminal justice system in this country, and you respect the results that it provides. That's how do, our country and our society operates. That's how our democracy operates. It's so, often frustrating, though, isn't it? I know I, I watch a lot of those 
fly on the wall police sort of documentaries on every channel at the moment. And there's often this battle for want of a better word, with the Crown Prosecution Service to get it to court. And then, you know, sometimes it can be disappointing when the trial doesn't go how you want it to go, when I guess you've built a relationship with, with the victims. That, that whole kind of navigating those relationships and seeing sometimes trials collapse or Crown Prosecution Service not going forward with certain cases, does that become frustrating or, or does it just become part of the job that you accept? Um, there are tensions in, in every system and actually it's designed to, to have those tensions to make sure that the right cases are going forward and when they have gone forward they're appropriately tested. So I think yeah. we, we shouldn't expect it to be all harmonious because actually it, it has to have check and tests within it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as long as we operate those in a really professional way, what, what it delivers at the end is justice juries are always kind of right there is a little bit of a kickback from that politically at the moment isn't there um predominantly with the conservative party of which your boss i guess you would call him mark shelford who is a a conservative a police and crime commissioner there's some sort of noises coming around about people trying to kind of question the jury system so presumably you you don't agree with them uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm very happy with the system as it is now. The jury system means that there are 12 people, peers who are assessing the evidence properly directed by a judge within the criminal procedure roles. You know, I've often been asked in, in connection with rape cases whether a non-jury system, a judicial system would work. And I know that in different parts of the world that that, that does operate. But I, 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 I find it hard to see compelling evidence to to change from this yeah um if when the judgment is in the hands of just one person or maybe three persons what what that makes that better i'm not sure so i'm a big advocate of the jury system as we have it today because i suppose that their argument would be well it's it's populist it's 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 the general public that don't really know the ins and outs of criminal law and if we went you know to more of a magistrates or you know or a slightly different system where there are legal professionals making decisions it would be more effective and you wouldn't have got a result like you did at the, the Colson before statute yeah I mean it's it's right to say that the the 12 members of public which is um how our society works but they are guided by a judge who does have that legal knowledge mm-hmm. they are assisted by advocates on both sides yeah. who do have to work within the parameters of the law and I guess like a sports game, as long as it's umpired within the rules and done so fairly objectively, um, I think the best way that we, we can gain confidence in that justice is being done is when it's done by our peers. Sure. Uh, presumably you can understand why someone or a large part of the city, but not all the city, wanted to relocate the Colston statue. I can absolutely understand why the statue of a slave trader um, would be an affront to a large number of members of our community. I absolutely understand that. Walk past that statue and know its history. I can understand why it's an affront. People would feel disgust, unease. And I can understand why people would feel that in, 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 in the times that we have now, it's no longer compatible with it being there. Yeah, I guess... Um... One one of the sort of charges against the not necessarily the troll, but the the impact that that couldn't have on racial inequality in the city, and the mayor's kind of pushed back a little bit against that as well. Is that, that actually symbolic acts aren't necessarily doing the real anti-racist work? These were obviously for white people. Um, came across to me, I would say, relatively middle class. That's drawn some cynicism in some circles on the right and also in some some members of the black community can you understand why the charge is that they're kind of jumping on a cause that's not theirs to jump on i mean i really um have some um affinity with the way that the mayor has described his reaction to this i you know i think we've got inequalities in our city Um, We've got inequalities in our country. When it comes to racial inequalities, they are 
exemplified by the events in the statue and, and the history that's in Bristol. To change that, it needs more um, systematic, hard work, societal change, but also institutional change. And that's going to take, and it has taken, years and hard yards to to deal with things like poverty, to deal with the other structural inequalities that we have in education, in policing and disproportionality. That's all hard work. And to make real change, real lasting change that is going to make a difference for generations to come, we need to work on those things as well. And if, if those events have thrown a light and raise people's awareness of those endemic structural problems. So it's a starting point for that conversation rather than the end point. For people coming into the conversation new, then yeah. it may be a gateway and a starting. Sure. But, but for others of us, we've wanted, and yeah. for many, many generations have been starting this and doing that hard work. I'm going to wrap up now, but I think one thing, and I think this relates to the underpinning of um, a lot of what we've spoken about, the right to protest. That could well change, though, and that is why a lot of people are galvanised in in Bristol to protest against it. If this bill does go through in certain sections of it, there will be time limits. There could be potentially, if things are too noisy, uh, people can pick up a a two and a half grand fine. Roadblocks, obviously we've seen that with Extinction Rebellion, uh, blocking roads and buildings can be up to 51 weeks in prison. Trespassing which is something that I know that particularly the travelling community is concerned about, can result in three months in prison. Stop and search, which we know disproportionately affects black people already, be increased, and we don't need to have any permission for that. And maximum time in prison for criminal damage, this is the statutes thing, has now been extended from three months to 10 years. Um, is this going to make your job a little bit more difficult if that bill gets signed off and goes through? Um, I won't say more difficult. I mean, it's a very big bill and it covers a variety of things, many of things which are good. Um, that particular bit, though, this particular support. bit around protest. I mean, I don't think it fundamentally changes what we need to do to facilitate lawful protest. Um, you know, we talked before about approved tactics. Just because we have powers, it doesn't mean that we immediately rush to use them. In fact, the approach to policing in this country is to use discretion and not use them and use the least intrusive possible. I want us to continue building a relationship with the community, with the protest groups based on transparency, openness, on helping those people who want their voices to be heard to be able to do so, but to do so in a way that isn't intruding upon the rights of others. So we will be trying to do that in the least intrusive way possible through negotiation, through talking. And, and in the way that we've had a prior tradition of doing so within Avon and Somerset and Bristol in particular up to now. So um, we will only use tactics where they're absolutely necessary and we will only use them to the degree that's proportionate. There already are restrictions that we can seek and ask for under the Public Order Act around um, we very rarely need to use them because we're able to negotiate and liaise and facilitate. And my hope is that we'll continue to be able to doing that in the way that we have up to now. So this could change from force to force then, depending upon um, decisions, you know, if that's kind of written into law. The irony of this is, after the first night of the police station being attacked, then we saw College Green. The following week, when the coronavirus restrictions were lifted, there were peaceful protests and the situation between the police and protesters was very different. The irony is, if this bill does come through with those recommendations I've just listed, it it, it would put you back in that place that you were in under coronavirus restrictions, which is about being forced to move people on after a certain time or for a certain amount of people gathering or roadblocks. So is it the rank-and-file police? I know you can't speak for everybody. Is there cynicism from the police about this bill? not heard a view actually expressed i mean when law is going through the system again because of our role as independent is we don't often engage or um comment upon it because we trust in the democratic process to Mm -hmm. kind of and its checks and balances to do its will and when it becomes law we then think about how we practically and pragmatically implement it what i don't think the bill does is it stops us which is i find the most 
from my own experience of being that gold public order commander, the mm. most important aspect of planning and doing protests is the engagement um, with the protest groups, with the community, with other individuals that are involved or infected and happening before. And nothing in this bill stops that happening. Um, that's what made um, that week in March very difficult because we couldn't have those open communications conversations and, and, and that, that was because effectively at that point having a protest was illegal, illegal. so you so the, those people wouldn't want to put themselves forward um, because effectively they would be breaking the law um, Absolutely. so it kind of put the police and the protesters into a situation when nobody was talking to each other because they couldn't they couldn't and as long as we can talk my own experience of doing these things and I did was the gold commander for Extinction Rebellion in Bristol in 2019, yep. is that you can find a way through these things um, mm-hmm. and be very clear that there are no secrets on either side about what's going to happen if a particular action happens. Yeah. You know, just given my personal view, you were there with the Extinction Rebellion protest, with some of the singing and the dancing and acting that I saw, elements of that, I would move them on quite quickly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, yeah. Any advice? Any advice? I would say now, just change the music to have a bit of hip hop, or I don't know, <laughs> do, do something else. It's just kind of like you know, you want to bring people with you. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, horrendous. I jest, I jest, I jest. I know. I did walk across Bristol Bridge to a meeting in the midst of that, so I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know I was the gold commander as I did so. No, crikey, no. <laughs> crikey. Yeah, it was. A, I haven't seen stuff like that for a long time. Um, thank you ever so much, Sarah. Most appreciated for giving up your time. And good luck in the, in the new role, and um, good luck in acting all these uh, areas of focus and key objectives. <laughs> Cheers, Sarah. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.